I'm Graham Smith. We established the Mothers Program to provide a reliable source of information about pregnancy on the internet with the goal to improve mothers' health through education, research, and screening. The Mothers Podcasts are an extension of that. Today we're going to be discussing dietary considerations in pregnancy in general and specifically related to diabetes and pregnancy. Our guest is Rebecca DeWare. Rebecca is a registered dietitian at the Kingston Health Sciences Center and works at the Diabetes and Pregnancy Clinic. Rebecca, welcome and thank you for speaking with us. Thank you, Graham. I'm very excited to be here. So we've previously done a podcast with Dr. Laura Gadette about diabetes and pregnancy. So we want to speak with you and we'll plan to do another one with one of the diabetic educators. But before we talk about dietary suggestions related to diabetes and pregnancy, I'd like to just take a few minutes to talk about dietary recommendations in pregnancy in general. I always remind patients that you're not eating for two, but rather they should be eating twice as healthy. Pregnancy is not a time for dieting, but it is a time to watch one's diet. What general recommendations do you have for pregnant women? So the first thing I usually tell my patients is exactly what you just said, Graham. You may need some extra food during the second and third trimester to ensure appropriate weight gain, but you certainly do not need to eat twice as much as you were prior to your pregnancy. If any additional food or calories are needed later on in pregnancy, this can usually be achieved with an extra snack or two throughout the day. It's important to listen to your body, meaning eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. The key building blocks for a healthy baby are folate, vitamin C, the B vitamins, vitamin D, calcium, iron, protein, and omega-3s. Eating a balanced diet that contains a variety of fruits and vegetables, grain products, milk and alternatives, and meat and alternatives, in addition to taking your prenatal vitamin, will ensure that you and the baby are getting adequate amounts of these nutrients. Diets often restrict certain food groups or the quantity of food, which makes it very difficult to meet your nutrition needs during pregnancy. During pregnancy, there are some foods to avoid or limit. So caffeine passes through the placenta and into your baby's bloodstream. A developing baby can't get rid of caffeine as easily as our bodies could. Therefore, it's recommended to not exceed 300 milligrams of caffeine per day which equals out to about two cups of coffee. Other sources of caffeine to be aware of include tea, soda or pop, and chocolate. There are some herbal teas that should be avoided during pregnancy, as the safety of these drinks have not been tested yet. Some herbal teas that can be included during pregnancy include teas such as ginger, orange peel, peppermint, rosemary, and rosehip. However, this is not a comprehensive list. And these are safe to consume in an amount of two to three cups per day. Alcohol should be avoided completely during pregnancy and even while you are trying to get pregnant. Fish should certainly be included during pregnancy as it provides a good source of protein and omega-3 fats. However, there are some types of fish that have high levels of mercury, which can be harmful to the baby. Therefore, it's recommended to have five ounces of fish each week. Appropriate types of fish to include would be salmon, mackerel, herring, cod, canned light tuna. And again, this is not a comprehensive list. An important factor to consider during pregnancy is that when you skip a meal, the baby does too. Therefore, it's recommended to eat three meals per day and not to go more than four hours without having something to eat. 
taking precautions to ensure food safety, such as washing your hands, cooking your food all the way through and to a safe internal temperature and paying attention to the best before and expiry date will help protect you and your baby from food poisoning. So as you can see, what you eat during pregnancy is certainly important, but how you eat is also important. You mentioned a serving size of five ounces. Is that about the size of a deck of cards? Not quite, but you're certainly on the right track regarding the reference to the deck of cards. There are a lot of very useful strategies and tools developed to easily measure out portion sizes without having to use measuring cups or scales. Some strategies for measuring portion sizes use the size of your hands, which can be very helpful as your hands are obviously right there while you're cooking or preparing food. The only issue with this is that there's quite a variance in between hand sizes among some individuals. So one strategy for easily determining portion sizes uses common items, such as a deck of cards, like you mentioned, to compare portion sizes of food. Three ounces of meat, poultry, or fish is about the size of a deck of cards and equals one serving size. Fish tends to be a bit thinner than cuts of meat or poultry, so you can also visualize the size of a checkbook to measure out about three ounces of fish. Let's say your meat, poultry, or fish is a bit misshapen. You can use the size of three dice to measure out one ounce of cooked meat, poultry, or fish. If you're in a situation where you're trying to measure out your portion sizes and do not have measuring tools, a good tip to remember is that one cup is about the size of a tennis ball and a quarter cup is about the size of a golf ball. So certainly gaining weight in pregnancy is expected. Health Canada has a good site about weight gain and nutrition in pregnancy. We will put a link to that. Based on your pre-pregnancy BMI, which is calculated based on your height and weight, you can figure out how much weight gain is expected. In early pregnancy, many women suffer from significant nausea and vomiting. Any suggestions in terms of how they can try to manage this from a dietary point of view? Absolutely. So nausea and vomiting can certainly be a big barrier to getting the nutrients that you and your baby need during pregnancy. When expecting moms are struggling with nausea or vomiting, we usually recommend eating five to six small meals throughout the day rather than three larger meals and try not to skip meals. Having something small that is plain and starchy, so something like crackers, bread, or dry cereal, first thing in the morning, even before getting out of bed, can really help with morning sickness. It's also recommended to drink fluids before and after meals rather than during meals to help get the nutrients that you need during meals. Staying away from coffee, spicy, fried and greasy foods, and foods with strong odors or taste can help to reduce nausea and vomiting during mealtimes as well. Often foods that are room temperature or cold are usually better tolerated in pregnant women that are experiencing nausea or vomiting with strong odors. They can also have someone else cook or prepare the meal for them, or if that's not an option, then they can open a window or use a fan while they are cooking to remove any odors. Getting up slowly and avoid lying down after eating can be helpful. For anyone experiencing nausea or vomiting during pregnancy, it's important to sip on fluids frequently throughout the day to prevent dehydration, especially if there is significant vomiting. Lastly, when you are experiencing nausea or vomiting, it's best to avoid your favorite foods for now, as strange as that sounds, so that down the road, you don't associate these foods with feeling unwell. I hear it frequently from patients as they get farther along 
that there just isn't room in the stomach for a big meal and they feel fuller for longer. Certainly as your meals get smaller, your snacks should get bigger. You're trying to spread out your calories over the whole day. Eating in a healthy way often requires planning. Can you give us some easy suggestions on what they should have as snacks? Absolutely. You should aim to include two food groups, so fruits or vegetables, grains and starches, and or protein when planning or preparing snacks. So some easy and healthy snack ideas would be cheese and crackers, hummus and whole wheat pita, fruit with Greek yogurt, a banana or apple with peanut butter, or fruits or vegetables with low-fat cottage cheese. So women who either have diabetes before pregnancy or are diagnosed during pregnancy, what we call gestational diabetes, have to monitor their blood sugars, and watching what one eats is a really important part of sugar control. What are the general dietary recommendations that you give to these women? The first thing that I like to emphasize is that I do not want them restricting their intake of carbohydrates, so meaning foods such as breads, pastas, rice, cereal, in order to manage their blood sugars. Mum needs to consume an adequate amount of carbohydrates, somewhere in the range of 120 to 210 grams of carbohydrates per day to ensure adequate brain, nerve, and bone development of the baby, as well as growth of the baby. I recommend appropriate carbohydrate choices and portion sizes in addition to balanced eating as a strategy for managing their blood sugars rather than restricting carbohydrate intake. There are four food groups that contain carbohydrates and will therefore raise your blood sugars. So these include the more obvious grains and starches. Then we have the fruits. The less obvious is milk and alternatives. So milk and yogurt will actually raise your blood sugars because of the carbohydrate content. And then we have the other category, which contains sweet foods, so like baked goods and snacks. In order to keep your blood sugars within target range, so for gestational diabetes, we're looking at fasting targets lower than 5.3 millimoles and one hour after eating blood sugar targets of 7.8 millimoles. Women with gestational diabetes should be eating balanced meals that include adequate amounts of fiber and protein. Fiber is a type of carbohydrate that our bodies are not able to digest. When we eat carbohydrate foods that contain fiber, it slows the absorption of sugar from our food, which helps to prevent spikes in blood sugar. Fiber is found in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, and dry beans and lentils. When choosing a grain product, so like breads, cereals, pastas, look at the nutrition facts table for the grain products that contain around 4 grams of fiber per serving. Protein does not increase our blood sugar levels, and it takes our bodies longer to break down than carbohydrate foods, which can help prevent spikes in blood sugar if eaten with carbohydrate foods. When educating individuals with diabetes on balanced eating, I commonly use the plate method. Let's say, for an example, you ate chicken, rice, and broccoli and mushrooms for dinner last night. If we picture a standard dinner plate, we recommend that half of your plate be filled with vegetables, fresh, frozen, or canned. So in this case, it would be our broccoli and our mushrooms. One quarter of the plate be filled with your protein, animal or plant-based. So in this case, we're using chicken as our example. And the other quarter be filled with your carbohydrate food. So your grain, your starch, fruit, milk, or yogurt. In this case, we're using the example of rice. 
Of course, not every meal will look like this. If you think of, you know, casseroles, stir fries, soups, but what's important to remember is these ratios when you're planning or preparing your meals. So you want the bulk of your meal, so half of your plate to be filled with vegetables, one quarter to be your carbohydrate food, and the other quarter to be your protein. When we're eating for better blood sugar control, if one of those food groups contains carbohydrate or is a carbohydrate food, then we wanna make sure that we're pairing that with a source of protein. For example, it's very common to have a piece of fruit as a snack. Fruit is certainly a healthy choice, but it is a carbohydrate food and therefore will increase your blood sugar. If we eat a piece of fruit with a source of protein, cheese, peanut or nut butter, cottage cheese, unsalted nuts, whatever you prefer, our blood sugars won't rise as high as if you were to just eat the piece of fruit on its own. It's not necessary to include snacks throughout the day. However, if you end up requiring insulin during your pregnancy, Sometimes snacks may be suggested depending on your insulin regimen. Otherwise, have a snack in between meals if you're hungry. I mentioned earlier that during pregnancy, it's not advised to skip meals. This is also the case for women with gestational diabetes as eating at regular intervals helps our body control blood sugar levels. Some women like to count carbohydrates. So for these women, I usually recommend that breakfast contain between 30 to 45 grams of carbohydrates. Lunch and dinner contain between 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates. And snacks, if you're having them, contain 15 grams of carbohydrates. When working one-on-one -on -one with women with gestational diabetes, there may be specific recommendations made depending on their past medical history as well as their social, financial, and cultural background. But these are the general recommendations that I give for this population. You talk about a certain number of grams of carbohydrate. Is there an easy way to figure that out without weighing things? Of course. So label reading plays a very important part in managing carbohydrate intake. For carbohydrate-containing foods, so again, these are grains and starches, milk and yogurt, snacks and sweet food. So it's important to look at the nutrition facts table on the back of the package, box, bag, whatever it comes in. On the nutrition facts table, it will show you the amount of carbohydrates in grams per serving. Equally as important to look for the fiber content as well, which will be listed right underneath the carbohydrates. Remember, as I previously mentioned, four grams of fiber per serving is considered high in fiber. So let's use an example of two slices of whole grain bread. On the back on the nutrition facts table, let's say that it says for two slices of bread, which is indicated as the serving size, there's 36 grams of carbohydrates and 6 grams of fiber. Fiber is a carbohydrate that our bodies do not digest, which helps control our blood sugars by slowing the rate of absorption. Because fiber goes through us undigested, we can subtract the amount of fiber from the total carbohydrate amount. So back to the example of bread, if there's 36 grams of carbohydrates and 6 grams of fiber, when we're meal planning, we would count those two pieces of bread as having 30 grams of carbs rather than 36 grams. Typically, fruit does not come with a nutrition facts table, so it's a bit more tricky determining the amount of carbohydrates. However, generally one piece of fruit, such as an apple, banana, peach, orange, pear, what have you, is around 15 grams of carbohydrates. And for other fruits, such as berries, melon, pineapple, etc. 
It depends on the fruit, but generally 15 grams of carbohydrates would be between one half to a cup of fruit. Can you explain what is meant by the glycemic index of food and how this plays a role in dietary choices in pregnancy, and specifically with diabetes in pregnancy? This is a great question and often a question I receive from my patients with gestational diabetes. The glycemic index is a scale out of 100 that's used to measure how much specific foods will raise your blood sugar levels. So there are three categories in the glycemic index, low, medium, high. Foods with a high glycemic index, or GI, will raise your blood sugar higher and faster compared to food with a low GI. It's recommended to eat foods with a low GI most often, foods with a medium GI less often, and foods with a high GI the least often. In general, the more highly processed a food is or the quicker a food is digested, the higher the GI. So choosing low GI foods during pregnancy especially with diabetes, will support better blood sugar control and healthy eating, as again, these foods are less processed and contain a higher amount of fiber. There's an excellent resource on the glycemic index of food and drinks on the Diabetes of Canada website that provides a great list of carbohydrate-containing foods in each glycemic index category that I usually encourage my patients to refer to. We'll make sure to put a link to the Diabetes of Canada website regarding the glycemic index of foods. In order to provide better counseling or recommendations, I assume you ask patients to keep a food diary? How does that work? That's correct. Keeping a food diary is very helpful when making specific recommendations to my patients. When asking a patient to keep a food diary, I typically ask that they record everything they eat and drink, as well as the amounts and times during the day of everything they consume. Usually for a period of three days, And I ask that they generally include one day during the week and at least one day from the weekend, as our intake kind of tends to fluctuate between the week and weekend. I also suggest that they record their food and drink intake right away as to not forget anything. Keeping a food diary makes it much easier on my patients as trying to remember what we ate for lunch three days ago could be quite difficult. If they're monitoring their blood sugars, I will also ask to see this as well for the same days as their food diary. Having a food diary to work with really allows myself or other dietitians to make very specific recommendations on food choices, portion sizes, and the timing of food intake, which, as you said, allows me to provide better counseling to my patients. So after delivery, for those women with gestational diabetes, the problem goes away relatively quickly. However, it's still a good time to think about healthy food choices. Can you give some recommendations to these new mothers, and especially if they're planning on breastfeeding? Around six months after delivering your baby, you'll have another glucose tolerance test, which is the same blood test that you had during your pregnancy, to see if you still have diabetes. During this time and while you're breastfeeding, it's very important to continue to eat a balanced diet and to keep your blood sugars under control, as poorly controlled blood sugars can affect your milk. If your blood sugars remain high, this may affect the production of your breast milk. There's not a lot of supporting evidence, but there are some studies that also suggest that high blood sugars in mom may cause higher amounts of carbohydrates or essentially sugar in her breast milk. That being said, breastfeeding is still the gold standard and recommended postpartum, whether you have gestational diabetes or have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. 
because there's this need for more research in the carbohydrate content of mom's breast milk with hyperglycemia, meaning high blood sugar, continuing to follow a diet that supports better blood sugar control is recommended. Breastfeeding burns calories and therefore helps to lower your blood sugars while you're breastfeeding. This can put mom at risk for hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. So it's recommended that you check your blood sugars before and after nursing and consider having a snack prior to nursing if needed. Weight loss postpartum can be a real challenge for some women. I've certainly had many women tell me how they didn't lose all their pregnancy weight before their next pregnancy, and they started this cycle of pregnancy weight gain, but not losing it all. So after having all their babies, it can be a real challenge trying to lose what may be a lot of weight to get back to what's normal for them. Some women certainly find breastfeeding helps with the weight loss, but not all women do. Increasing physical activity is going to be part of any weight loss plan. Any dietary thoughts related to weight loss? When patients or individuals are struggling to lose weight, I really advise against any sort of fad or trendy diet. A lot of these diets are restrictive in certain food groups and essential nutrients. These diets are also very difficult to sustain long-term and often result in patients regaining the initial weight that they've lost. And actually, they usually end up gaining more weight than when they started off. When people restrict their eating too much, they can see quick weight loss. However, weight loss tends to plateau after a while. This is because our metabolism adapts to our food intake. If we're not giving our bodies the calories that it needs, our metabolism will actually slow down and will not burn calories as quickly because our body is trying to preserve its energy stores. This makes weight loss a huge challenge. Weight loss can be a very slow process as it should include adjusting our eating behaviors for the long term to support healthy eating. And this takes time. When we lose weight, we want to avoid losing muscle mass. Therefore, losing about one to two pounds per week is considered healthy weight loss. So again, you can imagine, as mentioned before, that this is a process that can take time. We don't want you to skip meals, as skipping meals often results in overeating later on in the day or at night. So we recommend to eat three meals per day that, again, are based on the plate method. So again, half of your plate be filled with fruits or vegetables, one quarter grain or starch, and the other quarter your protein. Eating high-fiber foods can help keep us full for longer and therefore prevent overeating. Choosing low glycemic foods most often is also recommended. Again, as mentioned before, these foods tend to be less processed and are higher in fiber. We recommend to choose lower fat foods and limit intake of unsaturated, which we consider the unhealthy fats. Making healthy choices and watching your portion sizes in combination with regular physical activity, can help you achieve a healthy weight that you'll be able to maintain in the long term. I've heard it said that calories are cheap, but nutrition isn't. This often pertains to fast food. It's easy, tastes good, but it often is high in calories. It should not be the daily go-to for our dietary needs. I think many people haven't learned to actually cook or make healthy dietary choices. Any websites that you would recommend where people can find easy recipes with simple ingredients that aren't necessarily expensive and simple instructions on how to make them? I agree with you, Graham. A large barrier to healthy eating can be lack of education on healthy eating, financial instability, lack of cooking skills, or a combination of all three. For anyone that's looking for simple and inexpensive meal ideas that support healthy eating, 
I would recommend checking out the Diabetes of Canada website. They have a great recipe page. There's also the Heart and Stroke has some great and simple recipes. And if you go onto the Government of Canada's website under the Canada's Food Guide page, there's a ton of healthy and easy recipe ideas. Depending on the size of your household or the number of individuals you're cooking for, some of these meals may seem a bit too large, but something that we as dietitians commonly recommend is to cook extra so that you have leftovers to keep in the fridge or freezer for easier meal prep down the road, which actually is also a very helpful strategy for decreasing the frequency that people resort to these takeout or convenience foods. Again, we'll put up links to those websites. Any final thoughts or bits of advice? When women become pregnant for the first time and or develop gestational diabetes, the eating guidelines and importance of keeping blood sugars within target can feel extremely overwhelming. I always make sure to tell my patients that the guidelines for eating during pregnancy and eating with gestational diabetes strongly align with the recommendations for healthy eating that we provide to the general public. It's not like you need to be making a separate meal for yourself from what the rest of your family or household is eating. The plate method was used as part of the nutrition recommendations for eating with diabetes for a long time, and it's now actually the focus of Canada's new food guide. So what we've been recommending to individuals with diabetes, we're now really recommending to the general public. We're promoting healthy eating behaviors rather than a diet for during pregnancy and for the management of gestational diabetes that can and should be carried on after your pregnancy for the long term. Thank you, Rebecca, for taking the time to join us to discuss dietary considerations in pregnancy. I want to thank our guests as well as Adelaide Burroughs, who helped to produce this podcast and for those behind the scenes. We are planning on doing a podcast soon with a diabetic educator. We will put links to more information on this and other topics on our website, www.themothersprogram.ca. The Mother's Program is all one word. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for topics or people we should interview, please use the contact section on our website. Until then, I'm Graham Smith. Be safe.